Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Paul Dover about his book titled The Information Revolution in Early Modern Europe, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. In the book, Dr. Dover argues that changes in the generation, preservation, and circulation of information, mainly on newly available and more affordable paper, constituted an information revolution in a key period of European history. Um, His chapters discuss all manner of ways that were impacted by this change, looking at statecraft as one example, looking at science as another example, among others, um, and argues that paper as never before became a transactional medium. um, And because of that, changed a whole bunch of things, created a whole bunch of systems, ways of thinking, ways of organizing that we recognize today, but maybe sometimes take for granted. So this is really an interesting book that looks at a period of history uh, that we often look at for lots of other kinds of revolutions, but maybe we don't think of in the sense of information. Uh, Dr. Paul Dover is here to convince us otherwise. So thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Miranda. So to start off with, I was wondering if you could please introduce yourself a bit, your academic background, and explain to our audience how you came to write this book. Sure. Um, Well, I'm a professor of history. I teach at uh, Kennesaw State University, which is uh, in Cobb County, just outside um, Atlanta. Uh, I am an early modern historian. My background is actually in uh, uh, Italian history. Um, specific, I started work uh, in my academic career with working on it- Italian diplomats, specifically in the 15th century, um, and uh, have sort of telescoped out of that to a much broader view of um, European culture, but still very much rooted um, in that original sort of granular work I did uh, with um with uh, uh, diplomats. Um, the origins of this um, project are multiple. I, uh, one of my dissertation advisors um, at Yale was uh, Jeffrey Parker, um, and he had, uh, uh, had recently um, published his biography of, um, of Philip II, uh, and then uh, was working on, when I was there, um, his book on the grand strategy of Philip II, in which he very much looked at Philip as uh, uh, an administrator and specifically as someone who dealt with information flows. I mean, Philip was famously the Rey Papalero, a um, a monarch who refused to delegate and as a result had enormous quantities of paper coming across his uh, desk, um, insisting on 
seeing every last piece of correspondence that was um, sent to him. Um, and uh, Jeffrey looked at this ex- in an extremely innovative way, suggesting that Philip was actually a victim of information overload, something that we associate perhaps with our current age, but which which Jeffrey saw um, uh, in looking at a 16th century monarch. My own work at the time, way back then when I was a graduate student, um, I was looking at the... Uh, I was looking at the work of 15th century ambassadors at a time when Italian city-states began to deploy permanent resident ambassadors. And one of the expectations of increasing numbers of these ambassadors is that they would write almost every single day, um, thus not only being uh, negotiators and representatives of princes, but also essentially as information providers, um, giving the latest on uh, what they had heard, um, what they had seen, uh, and their default, uh, their default position was to write everything. Um, and the result of this was that there was a, on a much smaller scale than what you'd see in the global empire of Philip II, information overload. Um, and I remember very distinctly, I was reading the um, dispatches of a, an ambassador in the 1490s, who was actually a, an ambassador of the, um, uh, the Duke of Modena. And he wrote and complained that his, all of his paperwork was making him mezzo-orbo, half-blind. And I saw in that, I said, boy, that sounds a lot like the sorts of things we complain about. And I wondered whether that was a complaint that would have been seen or heard 100 or 200 years earlier. Was there something um, really uh, underway here in terms of um, the amount of information that statesmen like this um, had to manage? Um, A few years later, I sort of put that aside, and a a few years later, um, I became aware of the work of Anne Blair, um, and in particular, who's... Uh, uh, at Harvard University, um, someone uh, who has written uh, widely about Jean Baudin, about um, book history more broadly. And she wrote a fascinating book called Too Much to Know, which was about uh, information management in scholarly communities in the late Middle Ages and early modern period. And specifically, she was looking at um, at uh, reference books and um, encyclopedias um, and was stressing the importance of information management, especially in the period right after the advent of print. Um, so here we see the importance of information management and perhaps the uh, incidence of overload in both political life, but also in scholarly life. And then, of course, I was living in an age of digital transformation, was aware of the both the challenges and opportunities, the discomfitures which come about with uh, the enormous amount of digital information at our fingertips, um, and uh, recognize that we too uh, were in an age where information management of creating filters to be able to get the right information in order to uh, uh, affect change and achieve knowledge um, 
that was absolutely paramount to us. Um, uh, and then I was lucky enough to get in uh, 2016 to get a um, an NEH uh, long-term grant at the Folger Shakespeare Library to really explore whether this emphasis on information management, which I'd perceived in both statecraft and in scholarly life, was actually something that was general to the early modern period. Um, and I came to the conclusion that it was, um, that in fact, there were more information flows in early modern society than there had ever been before. And there was an increasing evidence, in increasing evidence, a need to manage those flows. Um, and most of this was recorded on paper, which was now increasingly uh, available and affordable to early modern Europeans and was deployed in all sorts of different milieu and for different purposes. Um, I remember when I first arrived at the NEH, uh, at the uh, Folger, um, I went to get my subway card and uh, the screen appeared to me and I took a, I took a screenshot of it because it, it was the present age talking to a historian who at that time was trying to make sense of the past. And, and it said that it announced on the screen, paper is so 20th century because it was inviting me to rather than have a paper ticket to have one of these cards that would do everything digitally for me. And that's when I thought about, um, uh, I thought about the period that I was looking at um, as perhaps a bookend, that if we were at the, in this current age, as we're constantly told um, that we are at the end of the age of paper, what did, uh, what did the other end of that, what did the other bookend look like? How did we get into this age of paper? And what was its relationship to information and information management? Um, so I decided to write a new history of the early modern period, um, specifically looking at it through the lens of information. So there were a number of different rivulets, if you will, that flowed into the river that became um, this book. Um, so that's how we ended up with the information revolution in early modern Europe. <laughs> Thank you for explaining all of that. I think a lot of those elements do come through in the book um, and I have a better understanding of how those different pieces, um, you you got to them. Because reading the book, I was, I was quite impressed. I was like, wow, wait, you know so much detail about this and this and this. How did you put all those together? But it makes sense sort of hearing the journey of it. Um, and so to get straight into kind of the meat of it, you argue that, quote, three main areas of disruptions in European knowledge in the early modern period the opening up of new worlds and the voyages of reconnaissance and discovery, the rediscovery and embrace of ancient texts, and the upheavals associated with the printing press. So three different things happening sort of simultaneously intertwined with each other to various degrees. And you argue that information is the central concern to all three of these. So perhaps I suppose it's a three-part question, um, but could you help us understand how information is the central concern to each of these three areas? Uh, sure. I, I mean, perhaps looking back on it, um, uh, that, that, I believe that quote came from the, the, very, the, the introduction, and I'm trying to make a turgid case for the book. Maybe um, uh, 
a central concern might be um, uh, a, a little, uh, leave me on a little more sure, uh, sure footing. But I do believe, um, and those those three disruptions that uh, that you mentioned there, in which I uh, that I uh, delineated, um, are are representative. I could pick others as well, and you know, I talk in the book about obviously uh, the the scientific revolution, the public letters, the, the, uh, the print, uh, uh, the print revolution. Um, I could have picked those as well, but uh, just to pick, just to, to, to address the three that you, um, mentioned, um, if we take, for example, the opening up of new worlds in uh, reconnaissance and discovery, um, much of the, uh, history of that in Europe itself is um, the desire to accommodate information um, about uh, the new world, uh, about what had uh, been uh, discovered. And like any society, Europeans sought to accommodate it with what they already knew or thought they knew, which meant that they made a lot of mistakes. Um but I think, for example, about the the, the, the Spanish monarchs, and in particular Philip II, with his um, uh, with the, the the questionnaires he sent to the New World, and his desire for um, what he called entera noticia, um, the whole knowledge about these new territories that had come into his um, uh, in, into his possession. Um, now, such a totalizing view of knowledge is, of course, impossible and provides an illusory sense of control. Um, but what this meant was an enormous avalanche of particulars, um, whether it be um, uh, what we might call today anthropological about the people who were living there, um, but also you know, botanical, zoological, um, geographical um, all of these particulars from the new world coming in compelled uh, compelled um, those who received them, either in print or through reports, through the filling out of such questionnaires, to organize and categorize what they knew about the, the new world. And I think very similar things are happening, for example, in the rediscovery and embrace of uh, ancient uh, texts um, that there was this, this um, inflow of rediscovered texts in the Renaissance that humanists had dug up and with the printing press had now circulated in very uh, large uh, numbers. I give the example um, to describe how this is not only a, a, a question of, of, uh, of knowledge about antiquity and about um, deploying that knowledge for uh, the the contemporary society, but it's also a question of information. And I, I use the, the example of Erasmus and him talking about, about copia, um, uh, about the abundance, if you will, both that have now been, been made available to him in the 16th century, both through the advent of print, but also because of the, the availability of all of this, um, knowledge from antiquity. Um, an, an abundance of both variety and of volume. Uh, 
such that that the world of scholarship through the embrace of ancient texts is provides a dual copia, a dual sense of abundance, both in terms of the sheer amount that there is now to process, but also the great variety of it. Now, Erasmus was talking about how people could use this for rhetoric, but I think, and I wrote an article about this that, that, that came out in the Cahiers d'Histoire last year, about how you can apply this notion of copia, of both volume and abundance, to a whole range of different areas of European life, that Erasmus's, Erasmus's um, uh, conception of, 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 of learning um, coming in from the, uh, the ancient world um, as both abundance and volume can, can be applied to pretty much all of the areas of European life that I discuss in the book. And then finally, the, the, the third um, instance that you described was the print um, revolution. Um, now, there's been a lot of debate, uh, you know, starting with Elizabeth Eisenstein and then the, 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 the very uh, interesting and contentious debate about the, about the fixity and stability of print, um, her, her, her debate with Adrian Johns and, and others. Um, I see the print revolution as genuine revolution, genuinely revolutionary, um, but perhaps for reasons other than has been identified, I see it um, as revolutionary by virtue of the fact that it just injected huge quantities of information in, into a whole range of different areas of European life. Yes, into the learned circles that Erasmus um, uh, uh, lived in, but also into the public square um, uh, with uh, the printed news pamphlets and the creation of, of, of um, um, but, but also just in an, an enormous range of, of printed items, not just books, but pamphlets, um, news sheets, uh, how-to books, primers, uh, and forms, uh, almanacs, all of these, just an enormous quantity of information was, was pushed by the printing press into the, uh, into the, the, the public square. Um, and, uh, so, and that circulated, it could be shared. Um, it could be in many cases read and discarded, but it was also, and, uh, you know, whether I don't really engage questions of, 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 of fixity and stability that, that Johns and Eisenstein um, debated, but I do see it as informationally transformative. And if you take all three of those cases, and this could be extended to many of the other things I look at in the book, there is in all of these cases a then subsequent urge to taxonomize to take all that information and categorize it, to put it into uh, a desire to place all this new information into categories. Um, and that taxonomy is fundamentally what we would call today a question of information management. So in all three of these areas that I just described, you have an abundance of new information, and then subsequent efforts, sort of second order efforts, to take that information and put it into categories that make it legible, that make it 
accessible and ultimately deployable and usable for other ends. So this gives a really great idea of how these things, again, are in parallel, but also overlap, right? We're seeing some of these themes come up. And um, as you mentioned, you do have a section that talks as well about the impact on the sciences. So I was wondering if you could, given that we're talking about these sort of big ideas and how information fits in, briefly explain how you argue the natural sciences were also impacted by these changes. Sure. Um, uh, you know, there's a there's a, a, a rather contentious um, uh, argument out there about um, whether there was a scientific um, uh, revolution uh, uh, at, at all. Um, it's a question that I I don't uh, I don't to really engage uh, that much. I mean, that's a, a question for another um, another book. Um, but I do suggest that we can relate the transformations of that we see in um, uh, under the the world the the attempts to understand nature in natural philosophy um, as impacted in some very, very important ways by the expansion of what people in the early modern period called particulars, the availability of particulars. And uh, I outlined specifically the the impact of the empirical mindset and the, uh, the importance of observation and related and importantly related to this description that if you look at the virtuosi of in the world of natural philosophy in this in this time, um, even if they are not embracing the experimental um, attitude that we associate with modern science, they are emphasizing um, observatio, observation, and and description. Um, it might be qualitative. It may be uh, quantitative, but and these are records that they are um, that end up on paper, and thus become movable and subject to uh, circulation uh, and sharing. We might today call this data, um, uh, although that was not a word that was used at the time. Um, the science the the, the world of science is also deeply impacted by the availability of, of books in print. Again, making scientific knowledge movable, shareable, um, subject to circulation. And all of this work, the historia, if you will, uh, was a spur to further observation, further description, to further exploration of ideas. And that's why I call... Um, the chapter on um, the, the world of science, the book of nature and the books of man, because both of these are um, spurs to, um, to, to, to further understanding of the natural world. And then there's an additional um, part of this, uh, which is that, um, that the widespread availability of paper um, and the advent of postal services also 
um, makes letter writing a and uh, the letter writing and these networks of sociability that uh, you know we often associate with the the Republic of of letters um, mean that all of these observations, all of these data, all of these particulars come to be shared um, uh, through um, uh, these these through epistolarity, through um, the sharing of letters. And in all of these cases, in all of these cases, there is simply more information in, um, in circulation. Um, and among the results of this is that, that the, the, the traditional bounded, finite Aristotelian universe came to be, came to be um, utterly exploded. Um, uh, it was subject to the corrosive influence of all of these particulars gathered through observation and experience. Um, uh, I highlight in the book in particular the um, how this happens in the areas of, of botany uh, and, and um, medicine um, to areas of uh, understanding of nature that are particularly inclined towards um, observation. Um, and it, in botany, there is a, a radical expansion, um, partly because of all of the information coming in from the new world and all of the new um, uh, flora that is, uh, is, is discovered there, but also because of this new empirical attitude towards observing um, plants at home, there's an absolute explosion in the number of, uh, of, of, of plants that are uh, uh, recorded by um, naturalists. Similarly, in the area of medicine, physicians are um, recording uh, their observations of case studies. Um, and there's a whole host of early modern publications um, that recount these so-called observaciones, right? These observations of particular case studies. Uh, and these, these publications become gargantuan, right? And establish a sort of medical precedent that other, uh, that other um, uh, physicians can then um, consult. Um, and uh, this... This, in this sense, there is um, a, a, just a, a corrosive nature of the availability of data and of these um, particular um, particulars. Um, is that uh, you know this is the databases perhaps that um, that we identify as so central today to an understanding of the natural world. So there's many a great many ways that we can understand the transformations of um, the associated with the scientific revolution, but uh, the one that I emphasize in this book, again by looking at it through the lens of information, um, is how many of the important changes associated with natural philosophy in this time fundamentally have to do with uh, the, the these. Uh, changes in both the, the volume 
and in the management and sharing and, and storing of, uh, of information. And this speaks to a wider point that you make about how the availability and wider use of paper has repercussions far beyond just that simple fact, right? As you've already said, um, the idea of paper allowing for more books to be printed, therefore widens knowledge that more can then be built on. Um, but we've we've so far talked more kind of about the quantity of knowledge, which I think is a really important point. Um, but you also talk about in the book the idea of how this also creates new sort of ways of thinking, um, and particularly new sort of assumptions about how people can relate to each other um, and what is the usefulness of information in a way. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about these changes and sort of the way people think and the assumptions. Yeah, um, maybe I can, uh, I can, um, um, I can take it back into thinking about those ambassadors that really got me, um, uh, started uh, thinking about information in the early modern world um, in the first place. Um, if you are, say, a, a Renaissance ambassador in Italy who is a, assigned to a posting, um, and it becomes, uh, and, and you are every single day, um, Either you or the secretary that's attached to you are um, are writing dispatches um, because that is the expectation of y- your prince. This is I I want you to um, to write regularly to me, uh, and you are regularly getting uh, instructions from your prince. And I've seen uh, countless examples of these um, in the archives of like. Of, of instructions that say, please write to tell me what you have heard um, at court, you know, what, what's going on in Milan, what, what have you heard um, uh, at the papal court in Rome, um, and uh, write to me what is important. But if there is any d- doubt, uh, if there's any doubt whether it's important, um, tell me, write it. This is an attitude of when in doubt, produce the piece of paper, right? Um, that attitude is extended throughout the, um, the early modern period, I think, to, uh, to all sorts of different practitioners. Um, is it when in doubt, write it down, okay? When in doubt, store it. When in doubt, um, preserve it on paper. Uh, this attitude emerges that if it's if it's, uh, um, and I think that you know the, the early modern period remains a very sort of hybridized oral and written culture. But one of the things that that is transformative in this period is an attitude uh, that things that were oral must be replicated, oral communication. Um, uh, oral agreements, uh, um, news that was originally um, uh, orally communicated need also to be um, written down. Uh, And that, in reasonably short order, creates a lot of paper. Um, We see it 
uh, we see it in the e e expansion of the uh, the diplomatic records that I was talking about. I mean, it's important to note that when an ambassador, a, a Renaissance ambassador, uh, writes uh, a, a letter, he often copies it for his own records. Um, there might there might be drafts of that letter that are then saved as well. Uh, it gets sent to the chancery of the uh, of uh, of his his home state, the state the state that has sent sent him out. It is then recorded, um, often copied again. Um, it is often then um, uh, summarized and put into another uh, uh, notebook. There are often then in the archive that it is in, uh, it is stored in. There are um, there are uh, uh, finding aids which are created in order that it can be found um, uh, subsequently. Um, and when that attitude of when in doubt, write it down, when in doubt, store it, uh, when that expands to embrace much of political life, um, certainly the, I'm sure, I think we're going to be talking about about the, uh, the, the influence of, of, of of merchant attitudes, mercantile um, uh, assumptions, um, and when that attitude is expanded to the uh, even to uh, the everyday lives of burghers who are recording their lives in family books, you have an explosion of paper, you have an explosion of information, and a subsequent second order uh, need, and in some cases compulsion to manage it. Um, does that answer your question, Miranda, or does that address yeah, your question? No, that definitely answers the question. And it builds beautifully to my next question, which is about the merchants. Um, because that was one of the areas it seemed that these new practices around information production, in some ways, it seems like they reached their peak almost in the bureaucracies around courts. But sometimes it looks like they were prompted in merchant houses, particularly in Italy, where it sounds like you started your research initially. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the the um, influence in particular that merchants had in this explosion of information. Yeah, sure. I think this was one of the more um, one of the more revealing discoveries of of mine um, that you know very often sort of uh, merchants and economic history more broadly is sort of a walled off, um, uh, perhaps uh, especially with the, the um, uh, you know, the preeminence of cultural history in the last uh, couple of decades. And I was struck with just how influential merchant practices and attitudes were um uh, in this period, it's easy to forget this because there's so much, uh, there's so much, um, uh, there's this sort of ideology of of or this revulsion of merchants as money grubbers, and you um, and a you know trying to keep that that world at arm's length. And what you realize pretty quickly is that the practices that merchants engaged in um, bled into other areas. Um, uh, with great regularity. I mean, merchants in the late Middle Ages, um, uh, merchants were already the, the sort of quintessential scribble, scribblers, and 
they were also among the very earliest adopters of paper as a mechanism of information storage, um, uh, using it in abundance um, uh, long before many other people um, were. It was absolutely central to their undertakings. They had a compulsion to write uh, and record. Um, and the you know late medieval Italian um, merchant houses, if you were um, uh, uh, if you were being apprenticed into one of these houses, one of the first things you'd have to do was learn how to do uh, uh, record keeping and to to writing. Probably it was an absolute daily habitus for them. Um, but it's more than just that. So they were they were writers, scribblers, and users of paper. Um, in in uh, in great profusion before much of the rest of Europe was, but they were also observers and describers. They had this empirical um, attitude towards the world um, that uh, that very much parallels the one that I was describing in the world of uh, natural philosophy. They had very much a real empirical approach to the world in seeking out markets in looking for opportunities, in um, perceiving, um, uh, perceiving uh, 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 shortages or abundances of products that they might take advantage of. Um, they, their, their world um, was, very much, uh, was, was, was very much one that um, required this uh, observational ethic. And they also abstracted their world by recording it in numbers in their account books. Um, They very much sought to depict uh, their business and the world in which they operated in terms of commensurability so that they they could compare things. And in this sense, in abstracting their world into numbers, uh, their records that they employed were very much uh, ones of pure information. Um, they were very much inhabiting a world of, of information as as we would understand it. Um, now, I don't want to exaggerate this. The, the, you know, very few merchants even by the early modern period were engaged, for example, in the rigorous application of double-entry bookkeeping. Um, but any... Um, merchant of, uh, of, of, you know, who had a business of any size would have to keep uh, records. They relied on uh, information flows. They were, had their ears pricked up for geopolitical um, uh, news. They needed information about commodity prices. Um, uh, so they were very cued into a variety of different information flows that might affect um, their bottom line. Uh, In the book, I describe how this comes together in the way that certain cities, which became uh, especially associated with commercial activity, um, were also information centers uh, where where merchants would uh, exchange um, uh, ideas, barter over um, commodity prices, where uh, a commercial press would emerge to um, publish price currents and other things that um, merchants needed. And so in the early period, you have the likes of Venice and uh, Antwerp, 
and then later on in Amsterdam um, and London. Now, this uh, information is thus absolutely um, central to the business of, of, of merchants, but I think what's what was particularly striking to me was how influential these practices um, actually were. So those very ambassadors that I was describing earlier, who would, in the beginning of their letters, answer the previous um, uh, correspondence that they'd received, and then after that would essentially provide a, a litany of information. Um, this was very much patterned on the practices of, uh, of, of, of commercial letters, of the letters that merchants would send back and forth. Um, in, uh, uh, this is something Isabella Lazzarini, who, who wrote a really uh, terrific little book about, um, about uh, Renaissance diplomacy, points this out, is that, is that uh, the letters that, that ambassadors and other statesmen start writing are very much modeled on the sort of mercantesca um, way of writing um, uh, of, of letters, of correspondence. Um, but it's more than that. Um, merchants in assigning comparative value to things um, and in abstracting the world in this way um, end up influencing um, people in other areas um, the, and the way that they organize their information, their segmentation of particulars and their second order information um, management. I mean, one, one person who makes this explicit it's Francis Bacon, who, whose approaches to organizing knowledge very much had origins um, in the practices of keeping ledgers and of waste books that uh, merchants very much did. And, and Bacon is explicit in, 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 in comparing his organization of knowledge to the way that merchants he's aware of did as well. And then finally, this sort of broadly empirical approach to the world that merchants take is one that um, that uh, statesmen who are trying to understand the state that they rule over to get a picture of it, um, that naturalists are uh, applying in their observational and experiential approach to nature, um, seems to echo very much this the, the, the attitudes that merchants are taking. Um I know that Miranda, you and I, uh, in your correspondence with me ahead of this interview, was, was talking about how some of the religious orders um, um, uh, uh, perhaps reflected this. Um, and in the book, I, I point out the, the the way in which the Jesuits do this is that the Jesuits, in their education, require a financial education, learning how to do basic uh, accounting. Um, and to uh, learning the language of numbers, but it goes beyond that. Um, in their their uh, administration of an international organization, they very much um, ape the uh, letter writing conventions of merchants, and they even engage in spiritual accounting of their members, um, and thus the uh, the the um, the governors of provinces of the of, of the society of Jesus are required to give accountings, spiritual accountings, in which they literally create 
account books <laughs> based on a variety of different um, uh, um, criteria to judge, to assess um, their individual members. And I think that, they're, that the, the, the connection with this merchant past is quite explicit there. Um, so these original um, late medieval um, scribblers um, uh, that merchants were, I think, ended up influencing um, uh, European culture and especially attitudes towards information in some very profound ways. I think this is something that was really fascinating about it is the idea that it started not just with merchants, but even with some particular merchants. Um, you trace it sort of from Italy and it had certainly much more further reaching consequences and links than I had realized before reading it. Um, certainly we have this perception of the Jesuits being organized and focusing on education, but there really are much stronger links and resonances between the practices that they taught their own people and what was coming from merchants, which is really interesting. Um, and similar, again, Francis Bacon, I do remember that from the book. So I, I think um, it is really true how these things spread and the impact that they have, um, which was quite fascinating. I, I certainly knew all those separate pieces, but had not connected them before. Um, and I want to sort of extend that as well. We've talked a bit already about how this translated to the bureaucracy of the state um, and Philip II and how he was a really good example of actually sometimes there was too much information um, and especially in terms of information from abroad, the growing empire, um, this wasn't always necessarily helpful. Um, but you also talk about how the use of information, the use of paper was used by governments, not just Philip II, to sort of legitimize their rule, uh, to extend their influence. And as we've already talked a bit about the challenges that this could give way to, um, the sort of the massive amount of paper, uh, you talk about how the archives had to completely rethink what archives were because um, they had so much more to deal with. Uh, the idea of I'm going blind reading all of this. Oh, my God, there's too much information. But I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about the opportunities, the ways in which they were able to successfully make use of all of this information um, in terms of politics and how states were run. Huh, that's a that's difficult because, um, you know, what how do we define um, success, uh, political success? I'm in my in my chapter on 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 politics, um, I make the, uh, you know, I, and I spent the previous, you know, 50 pages or so talking about all of the initiatives that were undertaken by, um, by statesmen, by secretaries, by chancellor, uh, chancellors to expand the written footprint of the state to, um, in all sorts of different, um, uh, cases, uh, to, uh, gather further information about uh, the, the the patrimony and subjects, and um, uh, and to uh, in, increase authority in the metropole by um, uh, by constant uh, letter writing and record keeping, um, and yet uh, at at the end um, of it, I uh, I, I state that. Um, all of these efforts to achieve um, full understanding of the state and full control were bound to fail. <laughs> um, 
as um, and this is what the, I thought was so interesting because we do think about oh more information that's going to make it easier to uh, make sure that people are actually obeying your laws or make it better and uh, more able to administer a large region and as you demonstrate that that seems to be the intent right the idea was that yeah if we get more information that will help us right why doesn't it uh well i i, I um I, I think there's any number of, of, of reasons. Um, first of all, is that, and I think that, that, that this is a good reminder perhaps for our own age when we tend to think of, we tend to at least talk about information as something that's neutral, right? As, um, as just facts, data, um, and, um, uh, you know, there's, there's no such thing even in this period of, of, uh, of raw data of raw information. I think I write in the book that, um, that, that, that information is always, uh, there's no such thing as raw information. It's always, um, cooked or at least sauteed. Um, and, uh, so the likes of, 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 you know, just to use the example of, um, you, you mentioned Philip II, is that there's a, a wonderful little book called um, uh, uh, "Empirical Empire" that uh, that Arndt Brandeke wrote, a, a German scholar, um, in in which he he shows that the, all of these demands for information from the New World, from governors in the New World, from um, encomenderos in the New World about uh, uh, about the subjects there, about the the, the fiscal base, um, pretty much everything else. Um, is that what you have to understand is that, um, is that there's a certain amount of, of uh, agency and control that the people who are asking for these, who are responding to these demands for information have themselves. Um, and they are going to provide information in a fashion uh, and tailored in a particular way that's going to benefit themselves and not necessarily the powers um, at the metropole. I think that's one part of it. And I think that's important to remember in our current age. And when we talk about my next project, I'll, I'll, I'll perhaps make that um, connection um, more explicit. Um, I think there's also the reality that the capacity of the early modern state to translate information into um, action um, into actionable knowledge uh, was limited, um, both because of the local particularities and resistance, but also because the the power of the state um, was uh, was was limited um, in a way that perhaps it is not in the twentieth and twenty first um, uh, centuries. Um, the picture that they that these these early modern statesmen are getting of their patrimonies and of their subjects um, through the um, deployment of paper instruments of demanding um, information from their, uh, uh, from the localities, from the, the periphery um, are necessarily simply uh, virtual pictures, right? Um, and this gives an illusion of control um, there is this 
creeping sense among statesmen of of across um, uh, Western Europe in this period that they that 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 paper control is actual control, and um, I, 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 you know, I don't think I'm saying anything groundbreaking by suggesting that the two are not the same. Uh, so um, I, I feel like I've I've sort of walked around your question, but perhaps not gotten to the very heart of it. But uh, well, I think it, it demonstrates um, sort of a useful thing to keep in mind is that in some cases the there were a number of examples where we could see this in a small way in the book. Um, and you're speaking to it kind of being a bigger impact is that having access to more information did not necessarily lead to revolutions and other things. So just because you knew about problems in one area versus another didn't exactly make it logistically easier to build that bridge faster that needed to be there or get people from point A to point B in larger areas. Um, you even talk about kind of the challenges of setting up postal systems or newspapers and magazines. You know, it was one thing to be able to write it all down, but getting things from place to place was still something of a challenge. So I guess it goes to show that more information alone won't necessarily catapult everything else um, into more streamlined processes, I guess. Um, and yet that does and yet that doesn't stop. It doesn't stop the practitioners from believing it does. And, and I think that that's, that's an interesting parallel with our current day when, um, you know, um, a, a great many um, sort of commercial concerns, educational concerns and others advertise the great value of having more information at your fingertips. Um, and yet it remains an open question as to whether that is actually helpful um, or useful because, uh, you know, information is not the same as knowledge, and it's certainly not the same as wisdom. Um, and that's as true for the early modern period as it is for today. Right. And this comes up in some of your examples um, that you briefly touched on earlier, the compulsiveness, um, which came across in some of the people that you describe with keeping diaries um, really obsessively because in some ways, because they could, because you could buy notebooks cheaply enough that you could use them up that quickly. Um, And yet it didn't seem particularly clear that this exhaustive keeping of diaries necessarily, as you said, contributed to greater knowledge or wisdom, either in that person or generally. Yeah, no. And I think that, um, again, I don't don't want to sound trite here, but um, there is, there is, just the availability of things often drives practice. So, you know, um, it's, for, forgive this particular example, but is it really necessary to take a selfie everywhere, right? But the availability of that capacity has clearly compelled a great number of people to take selfies everywhere they find themselves and, um, and post it, Um and, uh, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't want to, you know, compare, uh, you know, a, a tourist on London Bridge with Philip II in his chancery, but, uh, um, you know, I don't think, I don't think it's, it's uh, um, entirely off base. Yeah. And I think, I think there were definitely some examples in the book that sort of spoke to that of the, just because you can means you should still maybe think about it before you do. Um, 
And so in some ways, actually, that kind of brings me to my next question, which was you discussed towards the end of the book um, about print and how the print revolution, you know, that that's a really big deal. And we talk about it a lot and we should talk about it a lot. But you argued that an overly simplistic idea of we have print, therefore we have stopped handwriting, that there was this kind of decisive break and immediate improvement and change actually is maybe oversimplifying it rather a lot. And in fact, you argue that print in some ways created more opportunities for handwriting. Um, And in fact, you have this great quote, the age of print was in fact a new age of manuscript. Um, And talk about how these things could combine and again, create new ways of creating information, sharing information. So I was wondering if you could just explore that a little bit for the listeners and explain how you think these things go together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is not uh, uh, this is not an entirely original idea of mine. It's cobbled together from um, uh, you know the the findings of a lot of 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 of, of book historians and people who've worked um, uh, on the uh, advent of print. I think particularly of, of Peter Stalybrass, who's who's who said um, much the same thing. Um, I believe there was a, a print revolution, and I think I mentioned before that it was revolutionary, if only for the amount of information it injected into um, uh, early modern society. But at the same time, I reject this uh, bifurcation that we often hear about, um, and it makes for a, a, a sort of simple way of understanding the period, but I think it's wrong. Um, this bifurcation between an age of manuscript and an age of uh, print, I think, it, you know, driven by, um, you know, McLuhan's understanding that the medium is the message. I think there's something to that, but I don't, you know, it's not like typography ap- appeared and all changed. And I think part of the reason for that um, is that, uh, as you mentioned, as you mentioned in your in your your your, your question just now is that print was actually a spur to an enormous amount of writing. And the fact that paper was now available on which to inscribe this writing meant that people would do it. And I'll just give some examples of how it was a spur um, to writing. Um, This was, the early modern period was a great age of experimentation in note-taking, right? And this is something that's received quite a lot of scholarship, really fascinating scholarship, um, uh, recently, um, I, by Anne Blair, um, by, uh, uh, Tony Grafton, by a host of others working in the sort of intellectual history of, of the period is that when you have, um, an enormous amount of information available to it, you want to uh, parcelize it. You want to make it, um, legible and accessible by taking, uh, taking notes, um, and there were any number of ways that people were uh, were were note taking at this time. Um, uh, among them was marginalia. Um, it's important to remember that printed books are a combination of both print and empty space. And I've written several articles about about marginalia and what they reveal to us. Anyone who spent any considerable time with early modern printed materials is aware of the prevalence of of marginalia and how people use that empty space, that white space in books to uh, take notes. Um, 
The availability of print was also a spur to copying of passages or even entire works. There's been, you know, manuscript publishing did not stop um, with the advent of the printing press. There were any number of reasons why an individual might choose to circulate their work in manuscript rather than in print. Um, and that's just indicative of the fact that the vast, vast, vast majority of things that were written down never made their way into print, you know, 99.9 something percent of it. Um, one way in which the, these various streams come together is, in some, is, a, is, a, is a great early modern um, uh, a practice, commonplacing, um, in which uh, people from uh, scholars and others, and, and, and this again has has origins in merchant practices, um, where uh, you you create headings or categories, and then copy down under those categories um, things that you have read or been exposed to um, in your reading, um, uh, and you know. Most in the, if you look in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, a very large percentage of, of of scholars engaged in this sort of commonplacing. Erasmus recommended that you do it. Uh, Philip Melanchthon wrote a treatise on it, um, and uh, uh, Bacon suggested you do it. I mean, it was a it was a, 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 a very much practice. It was it was a, a form of note taking that sought to take huge amounts of information and put it into legible, digestible amounts that were all information that was already sorted was a form of taxonomy. Um, And print was a great spur to letter writing. I mean, another thing we haven't really talked about so far, but uh, I have a chapter on it, is that this was a great age of letter writing. Um, And much of the, so the Republic of Letters was a republic of Yes, letters in terms of learning, but it was also one in terms of the exchange of letters. So in both senses, and much of that writing was about um, books, about things that had been uh, uh, read or um, exchanged or things read in printed newspapers or pamphlets, um, uh, private libraries as well, obviously expanded in um, expanded uh, a lot. Um, and they themselves became nodes for personal writing, for um, note-taking, for exchanges um, between um, individual scholars. And then I think one final thing to, to, to mention about, about uh, print as a, as, a, as a spur to manuscript writing was that a lot of printed works that were published in this period, and most of them don't survive, and that's why we have a kind of stilted view of this early period of print, were meant to be written on. So things like indulgence certificates, uh, forms, bureaucratic forms that were meant to be filled out, um, almanacs, which were published in thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. But not only were they cheap, but they were also time limited, right? You, an almanac would last a year. and Why keep it beyond that? Um, or primers on calligraphy or grammar written for children. These were things that were meant to be written on. Um, so the, the, the books themselves were places where manuscript could take place. Um, and I think the final word on this is that, you know, no one talked of manuscript before print. Um, it was really only terminology that emerged to distinguish writing that was handwritten as opposed to writing, uh, that was typographical. Um, so 
people were writing, scribbling, taking notes, um, using paper in manifold ways in way in, in 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 volume that was completely unprecedented in this so-called age of print. And I think that's what's so interesting of the many examples you have in the book. As you said, you have a whole chapter about people writing letters to each other. Um, is that it really brings this as a much more interactive thing than we often think of. Um, and it shows how clearly this is a time in which it's an information revolution, not just for merchants, not just for states people, but really for a lot of people, a lot of everyday people that suddenly have access to these practices and this information that they wouldn't have had previously. Um, and so there was something just really compelling about the examples you gave of people writing in printed works, right? The idea of some books being printed that purposely had blank pages that you could take notes um, and all those sorts of things that we don't really think of when we think necessarily of a print revolution. You know, we think about, oh, the big Bibles and that sort of thing, which are in many traditions sacred. You wouldn't write in them anyway. Um, but you do, it's really interesting to see in your book how you expand our thinking on this and go, no, well, hang on a second. Like there's actually loads of things that were designed to be written on. It's not people defacing library books the way that we may think of writing in books today. Um, so given And the- a huge amount of things that were designed simply to be thrown away after they were used. And we, you know, our, our vision of, I mean, I'm not saying anything that most of the listeners don't, aren't aware of here, but you know, our view of early print is skewed by what survives. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, print runs of hundreds of thousands of indulgence certificates, um, there might be a couple of them left, whereas something like, um, you know, Gutenberg's uh, Bible, uh, you know, a good 40% of them still survive. Right. The same um, way that 200, 300 years from now, no one's going to have a lot of our post-it notes flying around. Um but we use them all the time, a lot more than we use probably much fancier, more expensive printed items that probably will be preserved. Um, So given that we have sort of talked a bit about archives as an actual practice, um, your findings uh, that have fed into your research, my traditional penultimate question, um, particularly for people who do archival work, is always quite fun, is was there something that was particularly surprising to you that you came across in the process of researching or writing the book, maybe something that didn't make it in, something that did. What was something that kind of jumped out to you? Uh, well, I could, I could, I, I, I could uh, express chapter and verse to you of the things that didn't make it in because this book was originally twice as long <laughs> as, it, as it ended up being. But uh, that was a a a, 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 a jarring. A piece of, of of correspondence from the editor saying, "Please cut half of this." Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I I'll tell you what I think was most um, surprising and perhaps um, rewarding um, for me in in doing this was that you know I I had a I I've had a publication history in um, largely in sort of. Uh, political, diplomatic, and and um, cultural, cultural and scholarly history. Um, I was struck, um, and we've 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 sort of danced around this topic in our conversation here. Um, I was struck with how how practices and attitudes spanned 
areas that we think of, perhaps because of our disciplinary, the way that we we focus in, in uh, our disciplinary focus and how we concentrate on, say, cultural history or political history or economic history. I was was struck how those areas that we often think of as scholars as separate, um, how practices and attitudes actually crossed those boundaries, that they, they made a nonsense um, of them. Um, so letter writing conventions that we might associate with merchants were actually employed by by statesmen and um, individuals, how the secretarial culture that I describe um, in, in the book uh, um, was one that um, had its fingerprints not only in um, uh, places where you might expect to see it in the operation of the state, but also in um, uh, in 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 the world of scholarship and natural philosophy, and um, the individual um, um, burghers who were keeping um, uh, do, making accountings of themselves in their in their family books and diaries, and how these information management techniques um, very much crossed um, European. Um, Culture, and I think it was this was um, partly a function, and I, I was aware of the fact that okay, you are you are looking at, at 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 early modern history through the lens of information. Is it possible that you are you are taking these paradigms and applying them artificially onto this world? And I became convinced that I wasn't. That in fact, um, that that pra- that this was a world in which the practices of of, of, of merchants, of statesmen, of scholars, of scientists, and of everyday people actually had a great deal in common and that there were all sorts of, of parallels here. And I think that that was, that was rewarding because it meant that, that the book held together thematically as a whole. Um, so um, that, maybe I was pleasantly surprised um, by that. And I think that that's, how I would answer that question. It's always good to have pleasant surprises. So it's yeah. nice that, that you had that opportunity. Um, and my final question, uh, you've now finished this mammoth project. Um, so what are you working on now or next? Well, um, if this was a mammoth project, then my next project is a blue whale. Um, so, um, I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation today that I was in part um, attracted to this project because of uh, contemporary um, concerns. Uh, I'm not an antiquarian. I'm a historian. And so I very much uh, take as gospel Mark Bloch's observation that uh, I think he was he was quoting Henri Perrin when he said it, but he said that uh, I'm a historian, therefore I love life. I love contemporary life. Um, and I, uh, I, I very much believe that all good historical writing is in some way um, contemporary. Um, and my observations about, you know, this, this, this moment we find ourselves in here when we're, we're both, we're struggling with both the opportunities and the, uh, the opportunities, the challenges, and perhaps the the uh, not so pleasant things about our current um, period of informational change um, that my work on this book has compelled me um, to think that 
we, in order to understand this moment we're in right now, we have to historicize it. I believe that what we are living through right now is is a is 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 um, is best understood in historical perspective. Um, that the what were the the differences between some of the things that I was in, investigating in this book and the current day are differences of volume, not of category. Um, and so I think it's extremely important in understanding our current moment to historicize it. I also think it's extremely important to humanize it. I'm, I find myself, um, disturbed, uh, maybe that's an extreme world, but disconcerted by the way that we talk about information in our current age. It's, it's, it's alienated from, um, the, the context of its human creation um, and information is essentially be in being commoditized by commercial concerns has also ended up commoditizing um, human beings as well. And thus I want to write a book that both historicizes and humanizes information in the human past. So the uh, book that I've started working on is uh, essentially a, a history of information in the human past from the advent of spoken language to the metaverse. And it's called Information, uh, a Human History. Uh, and it, it aims, as I said, to both historicize and humanize information with a view very much to talking to this um, present moment, hopefully without engaging in too much uh, anachronism. Um, Goodness, that's certainly not a small project. uh, It's not a small project. I had a very difficult time drawing fences up around um, this project, as evidenced by the fact that I had to cut it in half. And I expect that this is going to be very difficult uh, to do uh, here as well. Um, But I think it's a a project that will have an audience. Um, I think it's a project. I have a number of, of... of themes that I think recur across um, the human past. I'm fundamentally of the belief that information concerns and especially information management has been a concern from the very, very beginning of the human species. Um, And uh, uh, so that's my modest uh, um, ambition <laughs> um, moving forward and and it's 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 necessarily I'm gonna again necessarily it's going to have to be it's gonna have to speak it's gonna have to speak in generalities it's gonna have to file down some of the um, the uh, complicated particulars uh, that might uh, that might get in the way um, but uh, I like the idea of doing uh, of doing a big idea book now, um, especially because I think I've shown that we can profitably understand a period through the lens of information, um, while still being faithful to the to the the, the cultural context um, of that period in the past. So now I'm going to expand that and see if I can do it for for all of humankind. Um, all so, right then. Well, it might make it might take me ten years, so we might be having this conversation in a decade. Uh, about <laughs> well, in this the meantime, uh, listeners who are interested in these ideas can check out your current book titled "The Information Revolution in Early Modern Europe," published by Cambridge University Press 
last year in 2021. Thank you very much, Dr. Paul Dover, for speaking with us today and best of luck with your mammoth blue whale next project. Thank you, Miranda. It's been a pleasure.